Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and in this episode, we'll explore more of Connecticut's iconic brands, the subject of Connecticut Explored's winter 2015-16 issue. In the first segment, Jennifer LaRue gets a close look at the Mickey Mouse watch that saved Timex from bankruptcy during the Great Depression on a visit to the American Clock and Watch Museum in Bristol. And in our second segment, Sarah Jane Cedrone finds out why Noah Webster's dictionary was so revolutionary on a visit to the Noah Webster House in West Hartford. It's Connecticut Clocks and American Words on Episode 4 of Grading the Nutmeg. We all recognize that sound, right? The ticking clock is so much a part of our culture, the very sound signals the passing of time. But clocks as we know them, with mechanical moving parts physically measuring that otherwise intangible substance we call time, have existed for less than 400 years, since the mid-1600s. In the 1800s, Connecticut was at the epicenter of timepiece making, with inventors such as Eli Terry leading the way to ever more precise and affordable clocks and watches. Yet today, as we shift from mechanical to digital means of marking time, clocks and watches have become less essential parts of our daily lives. I'm Jennifer LaRue, editor of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I am here with Patty Philippon, director of the American Clock and Watch Museum in Bristol, who has promised to take us on a timely tour of the history of timepiece making. So let's synchronize our watches and get going. (laughs) All right. Good morning, Patty. Thanks so much for meeting us here at the Clock and Watch Museum. Good morning. We're so glad to have you here today. And how long have you been here with the museum? I've been here just over a year, not even a year and a half yet. We're going to stop here listening to these clocks for a moment. What you've just been hearing are some of our tall case clocks, or grandfather clocks, as they're more commonly known, uh, that are on display in the Barnes Wing of the American Clock and Watch Museum. And in this room, we feature a number of American-made, of course, tall case clocks from throughout Connecticut, but as well as we were listening to some of the chimes from some New York clocks, as well as some Massachusetts clocks. And we have uh, a number of them set at different times so that you can really enjoy the differences in their chimes. Does it take long for you to get used to all these ticking clocks in your workplace? 
I actually grew up in the house I grew up in. We had several clocks that had chimes that would go off on the hour. And so it kind of reminds me of home. It reminds me of my childhood. So it really, it, I love it. It doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't phase me. I just love the sound. It's very homey to me. So I'm going to ask a real basic question for starters. What is the difference between a clock and a watch? Well, there's a couple of very uh, obvious differences, of course, one of them being size and portability. A watch is very much more of a personal timepiece that's meant to be portable, whether you're wearing it on a wrist or as a pocket watch or as a lapel watch or something like that. A clock is a more stable, permanent piece. It's either mounted on the floor, on the wall. Even though alarm clocks are small, they're definitely meant to be more stationary. Um, there's also differences in how the time actually is marked inside. Clocks, a lot of the more early mechanical clocks are weight-driven clocks with a pendulum that keeps the time and moves the wheels inside. But watches, of course, don't have the size to do that, so they use count wheels inside um, with the me- in the mechanical parts of it. But um, how important was Connecticut in this industry of clock and watch making? Oh. <laughs> That's our uh, electric time clock or electric tower clock that makes that wonderful noise every once in a while. <laughs> it's got personality. It does. It makes everyone jump when they hear it when they're here. <laughs> um, but Connecticut actually was very important in the clock and watch industries, both in this country but throughout the world. Of course, many of the people who were clock and watchmakers learned their trades in Europe and brought those skills over to the United States. But it's really here that they are honing those skills. They're starting to make these timepieces less personalized, like less handcrafted. They became more mechanized. Um, This is really the start of the Industrial Revolution where these timepieces are interchangeable. They are mass-produced using water power. And they're making them so... This is where they invent things like, um, instead of grandfather clocks, they invent shelf clocks, and they're more available to the masses. And so it really expands on the availability for all of these clocks and watches throughout the United States. But then they get exported to the continents as well. So as a practical matter, I can see people wanting a clock in their house to keep Mm -hmm. track of time. Were they also status symbols, or what function did they play? Absolutely. In the early days of clock making, you would really have a grandfather clock. And you would buy the mechanism separate from the case. So... A clockmaker in the late 1700s is making about 12 to 20 mechanisms a year. So they're really status symbols, as you said, because only the very wealthy could afford these kinds of timepieces. As you move on into the early 19th century and uh, shelf clocks are invented and people start purchasing them, they're still not that common in the early days. So as these Yankee peddlers are taking these shelf clocks throughout the United States or the East Coast, and it was kind of keeping up with the Joneses because you really want to have, well, my neighbor has this shelf clock. Well, then I want to have one too. And they would start expanding because not only would you have a shelf clock, then you would have a shelf clock with a mirror, which was a slightly higher quality um, because the mirror glass was very expensive. And so it was really who had the better clock. (laughs) 
Can you tell about some of the people attached to them, some of the inventors who worked Absolutely. here? Absolutely. So the first clockmaker that's really known in the country is uh, Ebenezer Parmalee. Parmalee in 1712 creates the first tower clock uh, movement in the colonies, and that would be seen even still today in the Congregational Church in Guilford, Connecticut. So although it wasn't, um, in terms of his inventions, might not have been that innovative, he was one of the first ones in this area, and the fact that that tower clock is still there is pretty amazing. As you had mentioned in the introduction, Eli Terry is, of course, one of the best-known clockmakers in the state of Connecticut. He was from Plymouth, Connecticut, and he did did a lot of work with wooden gear movements, and what he was able to do was he was able to use water power, which he's not the first person to use water power, but he was using water power and unskilled labor to mass produce interchangeable parts. And that was really the big deal with Eli Terry. Other people are using water power, other people are trying to mass produce um, these pieces for the clocks. But the fact that these parts were interchangeable really opened up the clock-making community. He was able to go from making, you know, like I said earlier, 12 to 20 movements a year to making 200 movements a year. And then finally, in 1806, he had a contract with two gentlemen whose last name was Porter, and they were from Waterbury, to make 4,000 movements in three years. And he was able to do it. He had a factory that he built. He created the machinery to do it. And being able to have all of these clock parts that could go in and out of the different uh, movements really helped make them more widely available to the public. And that really opens up the industry and actually helps open up the factory systems in the United States as well. So then we have um, Chauncey and Noble Jerome who really take it to the next level. And they take Eli Terry's innovations and they apply it to brass movements. And they try to make brass movements just as inexpensively as you could make wooden gear movements. They made them interchangeable. They mass produced them. And I imagine that brass is longer lasting than a wooden piece would be as well. Absolutely. Longer lasting, less susceptible to warping and and the elements. It doesn't really matter if it's hot or cold. It's not going to to change sizes and shapes and, and just has more permanence. And, of course, was a resource that was available here in Connecticut. Where were the epicenters in Connecticut of of clock and watch making? Connecticut uh, is very lucky because it had all these great natural resources that was able to help with uh, the clock industries in particular. So right along the rivers, so here in Bristol was a big area, Plymouth, Terryville, uh, Ansonia had a big clock industry, Waterbury was very big. That whole river valley had a lot of clock factories there. New Haven clock factories were down in that area as well, so really spread throughout the whole state. Can we also talk about the move from big clocks to increasingly smaller clocks? Is that a, some, is that an accurate assessment of how things went? Sure, because the the larger clocks are really the status symbols, and they, as I said, they start off being really only for the wealthy. And Eli Terry, his next step after working on all these interchangeable parts was to really create a shelf clock because these grandfather clocks were weight-driven clocks, so you had to have the long drop for the pendulums and the, and the weights. So he had to figure out how to make that same technology work into a small clock. And they were just more transportable. They were easier to sell to people. They were less expensive. And people had places for them. And you see the changes in size as you see changes in American culture. 
because as the clocks get smaller, you really see that people are traveling more. People are not necessarily staying in one place, but they're moving. They're moving west, and they're looking for things that they can take with them. Then as really as the railroads come and things open up in the United States, you get travel size clocks that you really can take with you. You can pack them in your bag. One of my favorite pieces we've done recently is a, a, in the magazine is a story by Emily Gifford about Timex, and that was in our winter 2015-2016 issue. And she told the tale of how the then one-year-old Mickey Mouse character <laughs> saved that company uh, in the depths of the Great Depression. Can you talk to us a little bit more then about this transition to watches? Watches really come into play. They've been around for a very long time. Uh, and like with clocks, you would purchase the movement separate than you would purchase the case. And so it depends on what you were really using them for. Some people would have uh, spend the money on the movement because they were much more concerned with having accurate timekeeping and less about what the case looked like. Some people would spend less money on the movement and more money on the case because they wanted something showier. And so you have things like pocket watches. Wristwatches really become very popular, particularly during the wartime, because it was very impractical. And we're talking World Wars, First World War, Second World War. Very impractical to have a pocket watch. It's not very uh, easy to take the watch out of your pocket while you're being fired on to see, what's, to see what time it is. And then wristwatches for men become much more practical. The industry, of course, changes a lot during the Second World War in particular because many clock manufacturers and watch manufacturers changed over from timepiece production to wartime production. And a lot of these industries really stop their timepiece production in order to make things like bombs and fuses. Places overseas did that as well, but they were just a little bit better at balancing the um, production of wartime and timepieces. The United States, they went to full wartime production and stopped completely. So that really changed the watch industry in the United States. And really by the 1970s, there's pretty much no watchmaking going on in the United States. Places like Timex still had corporate offices here, but the parts are really produced overseas. We go to quartz movements, things that are being produced in China, things that are being produced in Japan, and much less that's, that's happening here in the States. And I guess now as we do move toward everything digital, um, people must still want watches and clocks for reasons other than simply keeping track of the time. I think in terms of watches, well, there's a couple of different things that are going on right now that are very interesting. They're very much a piece of jewelry, especially for men. You know, men don't wear typically the same amount of jewelry that a woman would. And watches really are um, a status symbol in some ways. You know, uh, if you even think of in the movies, you've got James Bond who wears his Rolex. There is an interest in vintage timepieces that have come back. You know, people looking at timepieces and watches from the 20s and 30s, that kind of retro look. But at the same time, you've got things like the Apple iWatch that was introduced last year, which is a digital watch, but it's a lot more than a watch, and that's kind of changing the face of, um, no puns intended, <laughs> but changing the face of timekeeping because it's more of a wrist computer than just a wrist watch. And then you have Shinola, which is in uh, Detroit, who is a company that's fairly new, but they are starting to make American-made watches again in, in Detroit, which is a great company. It's nice to see that there are people who are you know, trying to bring back these industries that were really so important to the development of the United States. 
I'd like to get up and walk around and maybe you can show us a couple of your favorite pieces in the collection. And My favorite clock is actually in a different room, if that's okay. Let's to go see it. Go walk and see. And it's going back to Eli Terry. This is actually an Eli Terry patent box clock. It is his first attempt at a shelf clock at a portable piece. I find it fascinating just for a number of reasons. Because of the innovation that it took for him to create this clock, going from you know a six-foot-tall or taller, say, grandfather clock to a piece that is maybe two and a half feet tall. Um, so you really can see it has a glass front, a clear glass front, and you really can see the movement inside it. You can see how he has taken the weights, which normally would hang low in a grandfather clock, and he has them running along the inside of the clock to make up for the drop that is missing in a grandfather clock. I love this piece because although it's from you know, 1816, it still looks to me very modern. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, agree. and some of my favorite, I, I, was, I was thinking about this question, you know, what are my favorite pieces here? And I realized that I definitely have a style of things that I like because my favorite watches and some of my favorite clocks in the collection are really skeleton watches and skeleton clocks where you see the mechanism and you see the movement. Because to me, it's the best combination of both technology and artistry because the movements, obviously, the technology to make them work but they're really and truly quite beautiful pieces of art in themselves. And so my personal favorites is where you can see both of those combined. Can you tell us just about what people can see in general here? How many galleries, how many artifacts do you have here? We have eight galleries here, and we have close to 6,000 timepieces overall in our collections, but we have about 1,500 out on display at any given time. We have different exhibitions that get put out, and so there's always something new to see uh, when you come in. And we still collect pieces, so we get new pieces and get to showcase them as well. And you really get a chance to see these clocks, not just as time pieces, but also art pieces as well. Is the wood in these pieces, by and large, uh, Connecticut native wood? A lot of it, especially here in Bristol, there was a lot of forests here. This was not very good farming land, so you, but you had a lot of trees and forests. And so when we were walking through, you can see some of the changes. Some of these pieces that we see here, these are gingerbread-style kitchen clocks. These are less hand-carved. They're becoming more stamped, so this mm-hmm. is more mass production. As you can also, you'll see that the clocks are getting smaller in size, a little bit more portable. But since we talked a little bit about Mickey, we have to see this great Mickey Mouse watch here. So this was an Ingersoll watch. Ingersoll was part of the Waterbury Clock Company in Waterbury, which did become Timex uh, later on. After a couple of incarnations of different names, the Waterbury Clock Company does become Timex in the 20th century. So these are some examples of some pocket watches that we have in our collections, as well as this great Mickey Mouse watch which I will point out is in its original case, and it cost $2.50. Originally. Originally. So, (laughs) yeah, that's neat to see that in person, I have to say. We have a number of character watches in our collection, and it's a fun thing. People always really like seeing them because a lot of people recall either having a Mickey Mouse watch or some of the 
Howdy Doody watches, uh-huh. or you know, we have Buck Rogers, and it really brings people back to their childhood and having that great character watch with, as they were kids. We can show you some of the examples of kind of the gilded age or the golden age, mm-hmm. I should say, of clock making, where you really have clocks for every style of decor. They're more mass produced now, but they're really pieces that whatever you're interested in, you can find a clock that matches your style. Here's a great piece that showcases baseball players. This is a tambour style mantle clock which was a very popular wedding gift definitely in the 20s and 30s um, I have my grandparents one that was like this that was a wedding gift and some of these are quite elaborate I have to say well you know everyone's taste is different right right <laughs> um, and over here we see other things that were made using clockworks so tin toys which were actually made here in Bristol where you would wind up the tin toy and you had a panda bear who might play the drums or you have a duck who rides a bicycle and his hat spins around these are things that were run on clockworks after the Second World War, and there's a lot of changes in clockmaking and clockmaking factories, some of the clock companies went to making other things. We have a television set here from the 1950s. Um, This is from the Ingram Company, which was here in Bristol, and Edward Ingram was actually the founder of this museum. And his company went through a lot of changes after the Second World War, and in order to keep his company working, they went to making television cabinets because TV was the new technology. Oh, that's a fascinating connection. This is a great example. This is something that people really love to see. This is what goes on here inside a tower clock. You can see an actual example of a working tower clock mechanism. You can watch the pendulum swing. You can see how the gears move and interact with each other. And this is what would be behind the scenes, let's say, <laughs> behind the clock face. Yeah, I have pointed out that there's much more beautiful an object than it needs to be for its function. It's it's beautifully crafted and it really is. You you definitely see the the pride in people's craftsmanship as they were making these. You know, it's painted, it's gilded, it's you know, it's bright for something that really people wouldn't ever see. You ex- you wouldn't expect it to be quite so lovely, actually. Right. <laughs> so some of the things that we we try and stress here at the museum is that there really is something for everyone when you come in to see. You don't have to be a watch collector or a clock collector. A lot of people come in and they're fascinated by the artistry. A lot of people come in and they're fascinated by the technology that goes into some of the clock making and watch making, um, particularly watch making because if you think of how many working parts go into something that is so small um, and really how difficult that is to work on and to, and to make it keep accurate time. And then a lot of people come in and really feel sense of nostalgia. They might see a clock that their parents had, their grandparents had, or they had as a child or things like that. And kids really enjoy it as well. So it's really a, an interesting place because there's, very, there's many different things that catch people's attention when they come in. I can't wait to bring some people here. I can't wait to come back. We are located on 100 Maple Street in Bristol, Connecticut. And right now, our hours are by appointment through the beginning of April. Just give us a call. Our number is 860-583-6070. And we are more than happy to open up the doors for you. So we are open by appointment. We open back to the public on April 2nd. And from then through... November or through Thanksgiving time will be open seven days a week from 10 to 5. Our website address is clockandwatchmuseum.org. It's always updated with our events. 
our activities that are going on. Well, Patty, thank you so much for welcoming us and for showing us around and sharing all this fascinating history about clocks and watches. I'd just like to let our listeners know that if you'd like to read more about Connecticut's clockmaking history, I refer you to Every Man's Time, The Rise and Fall of Connecticut Clockmaking by the former American Clock and Watch Museum director Don Muller. It's online at ctexplore.org. And for more about Timex, you can look at our winter 2015-2016 issue, which is also available at ctexplored.org. This March, to coincide with the 2016 Connecticut Spring Antique Show, the Connecticut Historical Society is organizing a display of shelf clocks from its collection. The display will feature early models made by Eli Terry and Seth Thomas, including the prototype of Eli Terry's shelf clock, patented in 1816. The display will be on view Friday, March 19th through Saturday, May 28th at the Connecticut Historical Society, 1 Elizabeth Street, Hartford. This is Sarah Jane Cedrone for Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. The winter 2015-2016 issue was all about Connecticut's most iconic brands, such as Pepperidge Farm and Bigelow Tea. Today I'm exploring another iconic Connecticut brand, one that got its start in the early 1800s and still thrives today. There are certain brands which over time have come to be synonymous with their product. How many times have you asked a friend for a Kleenex when you wanted a tissue, or for a Band-Aid when you would have accepted any other generic bandage? Webster's Dictionary is another iconic brand which has such a hold over their market. First published in 1806, Webster's Dictionary has become internationally recognized in English-speaking countries as the definitive dictionary, pun intended. Now Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, Noah Webster's life work continues to record the ever-changing American English language both online and in print, a centuries-old Connecticut brand which has readapted itself to thrive in the digital age. Today, I'm at the Noah Webster House and Museum in West Hartford to check out their new ex- exhibition, Defining the Dictionary, about their namesake's most recognizable claim to fame. Defining the Dictionary is on view through April 16, 2016, at which point it will begin a tour of libraries, schools, and community centers around Connecticut. I'm here with Jennifer DeCola Matos, Executive Director of the Noah Webster House, and she's promised to tell us more about the surprising story behind Webster's Dictionary. I know that Webster was born in 1758 and entered the early adult stages of life during the American Revolution, and that he spent the majority of his adult life, nearly 25 years, writing his dictionary. What motivated him to take on such a project? Well, you're absolutely right that the American Revolution really was influential in Noah Webster's life. He came to age during that time. He went to Yale. He studied. He became acquainted with the world. And that's something that stayed with him his whole life. Basically, when he got out of college, he wanted to study law and couldn't afford to. So he had to take a job, and he took the only job available to him at the time, which was to become a school teacher, which he really disliked. It was still a one-room schoolhouse kind of format, and he was really shocked by the use of British school books in America during the American Revolution, and that really offended him. And he was the kind of person that said, I'm, I'm not going to wait for someone else to do it. I will write a book myself. So he ended up writing the number one used school book in America up through the mid-1800s, and it was called A Grammatical Institute of the English Language. It had a blue cover, and so it was called The Blueback Speller. This book, as I said, was used by millions of Americans and really taught 
a kind of fledgling nation of, of children, how to be American. And so he had put in this new book um, not only references to uniquely American words, but also filled it with American morals and, and American history and American geography. And that is really the basis for his his eventual work in writing the dictionary. It's the blueback speller that gets him thinking about, you know, we are a new country, the United States of America. If it's going to survive, we need to have a national language. We need to have a system of education that everyone is going to experience that will teach us how to be American. And so this is really how he gets started. Um, And he tries a, a few other careers in between, but eventually gets going writing the first American dictionary. So tell us about defining the dictionary. Why did the museum decide to mount this exhibition? We realized that we really didn't have a go-to exhibit about Noah Webster's most famous contribution to America, the dictionary that that is now synonymous with his name. And so we really wanted to cover the process of, you know, how does one man write a dictionary? And why did he spend 26 years doing it? Was it that complicated? Um, And so we have, you know, different panels that will talk about these different aspects. It starts with the blueback speller, like I was telling you about, which is really his inspiration. And then it goes through the process of this, 25-year journey where he starts writing a book um, which is a compendious dictionary of the English language and it's published in 1806 and pretty much when Noah Webster announced that he was going to write a dictionary people said why 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 would we need an American dictionary and why should you do it and he he took that criticism and he worked with it and he said no I really believe this is something I really believe in so um, so he ends up publishing a compendious dictionary in 1806. It has 40,000 words in it, and it's not nearly what he wants it to be. It is like a thesaurus in a way. So it'll list words. It's just like a, a row of, of words. And then for each word, each instead of a definition, it's simply other words that would describe it. So it's pretty much a thesaurus. Not surprisingly, it's really badly received. People laugh at it, scoff at it, you know, he's he's very dejected by the reaction to this book. But he says, I'm not done yet. I'm I'm still working on it and I will make it better and it will be the best dictionary. And so then he spends the next twenty two years perfecting what he had started. And that ends up being an American dictionary of the English language, which he publishes in eighteen twenty eight. Jennifer, can you tell us what visitors can expect to see from this exhibition? Our exhibit team has put a lot of research and has created various panels that explain the process that Noah Webster went through and also the different editions of the dictionary. We also have an exhibit case of a few really great items. Some are from our collection. We have an original 1828 dictionary as well as an 1806. We recently acquired a wonderful letter written by Noah Webster just after he finished the dictionary in 1828, and it includes a great postscript where he apologizes for his handwriting because his hand is, is very fatigued after many years of use. So in the display case here, you've got an original two-volume 1828 Webster Dictionary. Noah Webster's 1828 is a massive work. It has 70,000 words in it. There are 1,600 pages, and they're unnumbered. It was so big that it was split into two separate volumes, and the cost was $100. In 1828, that was a pretty significant amount, which meant that the average person is not going to own Webster's Dictionary. Instead, it's very well received by professionals, professors, politicians. 
Um, and so what Noah Webster did, he really, he called his dictionary a dictionary for the people. He dedicates it to America. But in reality, it's not necessarily available to all Americans. So Noah Webster published the dictionary in 1828, and he recognized that the American language was always evolving. And so in his lifetime, he revised that dictionary three times. The last dictionary he publishes is 1841. When Noah Webster passes away in 1843, the copyright to his dictionary is purchased by George and Charles Miriam, and they had owned a printing shop in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, they continued to publish the dictionary as it was until they came to a critical point in the 1860s. There was other competition. Other people were writing dictionaries, and they realized that if they wanted their dictionary to be the one that would be used in the future, they needed to make some changes. There are a few things that Noah Webster's dictionary did not provide. Um, one of them was a, an affordable price that would make it easily accessible to the public. The other was its size. Having two volumes was not a handy reference for people. There also was his etymology that was sometimes faulty and um, wasn't always trusted by everyone. So what Miriam Webster did is they actually hired a team of editors to go through Webster's dictionaries and really analyze all of the entries, fix the etymology, add additional meanings of words that hadn't necessarily existed when Noah Webster had written it. They also added some illustrations as well, and they condensed the type so that it would all fit into one volume. In addition to that, they changed the price to be $6. And so it then became a very affordable thing that every American could have. When the Miriam brothers purchased the copyright to Webster's Dictionary, it's hard to know exactly what they were thinking if they had an idea in mind of, of you know, creating dictionaries for the rest of their lives. But they recognized that it was already popular at its time, and they recognized that if they were to continue creating the dictionary, they would need to keep Webster's name. And so you'll note that today the dictionary is simply known as Webster's Dictionary, not necessarily Merriam-Webster's. So they recognized that in order for their dictionary to be legitimate, they needed Webster's name attached to it. In the same way, Webster's Dictionary needed Merriam-Webster in order to survive. As I had said, it, it was too expensive, it was big, people questioned the etymology. So without Merriam-Webster, Webster's Dictionary probably would have fallen off and another dictionary would have replaced it. So they really had a symbiotic relationship. What's the big takeaway that you hope visitors will leave the museum with after seeing this exhibition? I hope everyone has a newfound appreciation for Noah Webster. He is literally a founding father of America. He created an American language that we pretty much take for granted today. But you can't look at it without noting some bias. It's written by one man, and so pretty much the definitions he thinks of are going to be the ones that he, he puts in it. So if he doesn't like cats, he's going to call them deceitful creatures in his definition. Starting in 1864, they had a team of editors creating the definitions. It, you know, is, is much less biased today. Um, and what are some of the new American words that Webster adds to the dictionary that you wouldn't have seen in the British dictionary? Well, a good example of that would be words that were unique to North America. A lot of them are Native American in root, so words like skunk or squash. And then other words that 
really relate to the founding of the United States, words like federalist, constitution, patriot. These are all words that Noah Webster would have added in with a uniquely American context. Jennifer, tell us about what else people can expect to see when they visit the Noah Webster House and Museum. We have Noah Webster's birthplace. It's the house that he was born in in 1758, as you said. It's circa 1748. It's a great two-on-two colonial, and it's a national historic landmark. In addition to the historic house, we do have some changing exhibit areas, as well as meeting space and a reproduction kitchen where we actually do a lot of hearth cooking with school children. We also do a lot of programs, and one of our programs that relates to this exhibit is an annual game show we host, which is called Webster's War of the Words. It's coming up on April 29th, 2016, and we have a great group of celebrity contestants that duke it out over the, you know, the etymology, definitions, trivia about words, and it's a really fun um, to be in the live audience for that. Jennifer, thanks for taking us on a tour of Defining the Dictionary. For more information on visiting the Noah Webster House, visit noahwebsterhouse.org and go to ctexplored.org and search Webster to read three stories from past issues, including Father of American Copyright Law, A Connecticut Yankee Doodle Dandy, and Noah Webster Slept Here, and So Did I. To subscribe or purchase back issues, visit ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Patty Philippon and the American Clock and Watch Museum and Jennifer DeCola Matos and the Noah Webster House. On the next issue of Grading the Nutmeg, we'll try to answer that age-old question, what makes Connecticut, Connecticut, in song and story. Join me, Walt Woodward, and the Band of Steady Habits at our recent lecture performance at the Connecticut Historical Society. It marked the opening of Connecticut Captured, a 21st century look at an American classic. This photo exhibit, taken by acclaimed visual documentarian Carol Highsmith for the Library of Congress, is part of a nationwide effort to capture the character of every American state in images at the start of the 21st century. That's what makes Connecticut, Connecticut, next time on Grading the Nutmeg.